This message was presented at the GYC 2012 conference in Seattle, Washington. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. How was the morning session? I actually missed it because I was doing some work. Was it real good? Good. You know, I've been really, I was really blessed by what Wes Peppers uh, said yesterday. And so I'll have to get the recording about uh, for this morning. So uh, praise the Lord. He is anointed by God. I really appreciate his messages. Amen? Amen? All right. Well, glad that you guys are here today. We're going to be covering some very interesting topics. Um, just to give you a heads up, you know, we're obviously covering genocidal God or just judge this morning. But right after, we're going to get into Jesus' apologetic on Ellen White. It's basically encounters of people who were non-Adventists uh, who came across Ellen White's writings. Very interesting. And uh, sort of what was their response. So that should be very interesting. Tomorrow we're going to get into the gospel truths. Gospel truths lost in world religions. Very interesting. We'll learn about how Jesuits actually discovered the story of Abraham in Hinduism. Now you think, where in the world did that come from? Well, Ellen White gives a clue, actually. So you'll have to come tomorrow. And we'll also go with... Uh, Biblical secrets in the book of Genesis. Very interesting. I, I, some of the stuff that is going to be talked about, I've never heard presented anywhere else. So I think you're really going to enjoy that. And then tomorrow, as the very last session, I'll share my testimony. And we'll probably do more Q&A. We may do some Q&A uh, after this, if there's enough time. I know we're already a little bit late, but I'd like to start with a word of prayer. And let's ask God to send the greatest of all preachers, the Holy Spirit. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much again for your goodness, for your kindness. And thank you, Lord, for the power of God. Lord, it is our earnest desire for the Holy Spirit that you will illuminate our understanding. Give us wisdom in your word. Father, we need to understand who you are in the midst of the Old Testament. Bless us now, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. The name of the subject today is called, oops, sorry about that. Okay, very good. Genocidal God or just judge? Genocidal God or just judge? By the way, if some questions come up in your mind, please save them. We'll, if there's enough time, like I said before, we'll cover some of these questions. The name of the topic is called Genocidal God or Just Judge? And uh, we're going to learn some very, very interesting revelations, things I personally never heard of until I began to study this subject out. And I was blown away by just the amount of research that has been done in the Old Testament concerning topics like the Canaanite wars and destructions of certain tribes, certain groups. Very interesting. Well, there's a, a man that I became uh, very interested in as far as his work goes. His name is Eli Wiesel. And he was a man who was in the uh, Jewish concentration camps as a young boy. This man, you know, right now he's still alive, and he speaks all over the world. He speaks for human rights groups. He's acquainted with many stars and presidents. When it comes right down to human rights and just the preservation of life and the sanctity of life, many times he's a sought-after speaker because he shares his experience in the concentration camp. His dad and his brother actually died in the concentration camp, but he, as a young boy, was able to escape. In fact, here's a picture of him, and uh, he's in the third row, third rack, 
and he's way in the corner. You just see him kind of just looking at us, kind of like the Where's Waldo. He's just kind of peeking out, right? And so this is Eli Wiesel. But something happened in uh, his experience there. He shared a very interesting story. And his story went like this, and he actually wrote a book about it. It's called God on Trial. And what happened was, one day while he was in the racks of that uh, camp, he was just laying there waiting for time to pass when he noticed three Jewish rabbis. There were former rabbis who were actually in the prison and actually were there and they get up and they go right in the middle of this internment camp. And what they begin to do is they begin to have a mock trial. And he's just watching the entire thing. And he's like, this is just unusual, this is very curious. And as he's watching this trial, he begins to realize who has been put on trial. These three rabbis actually put God on trial. And so he was watching the whole thing take place. And he was saying that these rabbis, they brought God to the stand and they accused him before the court, or be, which was the rest of the world. And he was being tried. The reason why he was being tried was because these rabbis believed he was responsible for what happened to the Jewish people. Very interesting. At the end, they condemn him for being guilty. Ironic thing is, in the end of the story, God stands up and condemns them as well. So, I, I bring this out because God is on trial. Can you say amen to that? The Bible says in Revelation chapter 14, the hour of His judgment has come. It's not just that we're on judgment, it's that God Himself is on judgment. And guess what? You are His witnesses. Can you say amen to that? We learned about this yesterday. Everyone is a witness. The question is whether you're a good witness. And you want to make sure that you have the best witness on your side, right? And so what we're going to be taking a good look at is what the Old Testament uh, is talking about when it comes to these various wars and what may be called genocide. Very interesting. There's a man by the name of Richard Dawkins. He's considered one of the four horsemen of atheism. If you were here yesterday, we learned about what he said about Christianity. But he made this comment about the God of the Old Testament. And watch what he says right here. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. You can see he's just going right for the throat right here. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. A vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. I mean, I, when I was reading this, I was like, I don't want to even put this up. I'm just disgusted by what he said. Very interesting. Uh, when he, this man goes after Christianity, he really hones in on the Old Testament. You know, many of us as Christians, when we're reading the Bible, say we get up in the morning and we're just like, oh, I'm just so excited about reading God's Word. We open up the Scriptures and we just read about how God commanded the destruction of the Amalekites. And as we read that, we're thinking to ourselves, I'm just going to read Psalms today. <laughs> you know how I know you, that happens to you? Because it happens to me. And so many times we don't understand the Old Testament, and God wants to give us a clearer understanding, and so he calls us to look deeper. But when you look at superficially like this individual did, you begin to pull out all sorts of negative things. He says all sorts of things about the God of the Old Testament. He's homophobic. He's just, you know, as a God who is just bent on the destruction of people. And he says all sorts of things. He's calling even God a bully. But you know what's so remarkable about this man? While he, here, while he is here on one side making this uh, remark about God, 
later on, in another debate with a Christian, he made another remark. And I want you to see the inconsistency of Richard Dawkins. There was a well-known television chef who did a stunt recently by cooking human placenta and serving it up as pate fried with shallots, garlic, and lime juice. Everyone said it was delicious. The father had several helpings. That's absolutely disgusting to me. A scientist can point out, as I have done, that this is actually an act of cannibalism. Worse, since cloning is such a live issue at the moment because the placenta is a true genetic clone of the baby. Science cannot tell you if it is right or wrong to eat your own baby's clone, but it can tell you that it is what you are doing. Then you can decide for yourself whether you think it is right or wrong. Now notice the inconsistency. Number one, he's saying over here, look, God is a, is a mass murderer, he's immoral, but then on the other side, he's simply saying, look, we can't produce any morality. And so you see the inconsistency of people who tend to point out the Old Testament in very negative fashions. First of all, you have to make sure that individual has a moral anchor to be able, or a moral objective stance to be able to make uh, moral statements like that. So if he's calling God out on his morality, he better make sure he has an objective morality. Can you say amen to that? Okay, very good. By the way, this is the great thing about Christian apologetics, is that they really emphasize the moral law. However, they're just simply missing the gap from the moral law to the Ten Commandments. Right, they're just right there on the edge. But when we take a good look, as we learned yesterday, that God promises something very special to us, and that is the thousand years. Can you say amen to that? A very special time where he is going to answer a lot of questions. I like what Ellen White says right here. It's very interesting. Every question of truth and error in the long-standing controversy has now been made plain. The results of rebellion, the fruits of setting aside the divine statutes, have been laid open to the view of all created intelligences. The working out of Satan's rule in contrast with the government of God has been presented to the whole universe. By the way, remember we learned yesterday that the beast and the false prophet are thrown into the lake of fire. When are they destroyed? Does anybody remember? At the second coming. But when is Satan thrown in with the beast and the false prophet? After the millennium. Well, let me ask you a question. What is the beast and the false prophet? Those are religious political governments. Human governments are destroyed at the second coming. But Satan's government is ultimately destroyed after the thousand years. That's why he's tossed in with them. The working out of Satan's rule in contrast with the government of God has been presented to the whole universe. Satan's own works have condemned him. God's wisdom, his justice, and his goodness stand fully vindicated. It is seen, now this is the most powerful part of this quotation, it is seen that all his dealings in the great controversy, have been conducted with respect to the, say those last words with me, to the eternal good of his people. In other words, what God did in the great controversy or what he allowed was always for the benefit of you. It will be seen this. This will be completely vindicated one day. It will be crystal clear that everything that God did or ever allowed was for the benefit of humanity and the good of all the worlds that he has created all that works shall praise thee O Lord and thy saints shall bless thee Psalms 145 verse 10 so we need to understand this as sort of a precursor as we dive into this subject that anything that God has done has always been for the benefit of humanity alright let's begin with this apologetics when it comes to 
genocide. First thing we need to understand, there's a commandment, if you read in your Bible translation, depending on your Bible translation, the sixth commandment will be stated, thou shall not kill, or you shall not murder. The Hebrew word is ratzah. It literally means to dash into pieces, to murder, to be a manslayer. Taking life can be warranted and justified, but murder can never be. By the way, what's the difference between taking life and murder? Murder is what? Is taking life without what? Justification. Murder has no justification, no authorization. The justification always requiring the most necessary circumstance and the most selfless motives. Pay attention to those qualifiers. They must require the most necessary circumstance and the most selfless motives. Murder, on the other hand, would be the unjustified taking of life and very unrighteous intentions that underline the actions themselves. Jesus himself equated murder with being angry without a what? Without a cause. Or angry without justification. Does God ever take life? Yes. Does God murder? Absolutely not. In fact, when you read the scriptures, you read 1 John, the Bible says that the devil sinned from the beginning. You read John chapter 8, Jesus says those exact same words, but it changes it. He says that the devil was a murderer from the beginning. And do you know what Jesus says what murder, what murder was? It was being angry with your brother without a what? Cause. Do you know that sin absolutely has no justification for its existence? You know, this blew me away. When I was studying out what Ellen White says about sin, I always, think, always thought to myself, she's sidestepping the issue. She's just saying it's too complicated. You can't understand. When she was saying that sin has no justification, to attempt to add a reason to it is to justify it. I always thought, well, she's just simply saying you can't uh, study this out. But then I begin to understand, wait a minute. She is, she is so brilliant. The Holy Spirit has really led her on this. She's actually giving the definition of what sin is. It is that which cannot be justified. By the way, you want to know what the last question that God asked the devil right before he destroys him? It's found in selected messages. You know what she says? She says that God will ask Satan, why have you rebelled? And he will have no answer. It will be seen that there was never a reason for sin to begin with. Even God himself doesn't know what the answer is. Folks, we need to understand something. There is a difference between murder and and taking life. And we're going to develop this and flush this out a little bit more. Destruction talk. And by the way, this is a Paul Copin's argument, and Norman Geisler brings out the same thing. When it comes to the Old Testament, moreover, Deuteronomy 7, verse 2 and 5, uses the word utterly destroyed, immediately followed by, you shall not intermarry among them. Highlighting the fact that, at least in some instances, the biblical authors employed rhetorical exaggeration. All that breeds, utterly destroyed, common to ancient Near East military accounts. In fact, when you look at some of the Egyptian records, you find that whenever pharaohs were destroying things, they utterly destroyed everything. Well, that's impossible to utterly destroy everything. So, Paul Copen and Norman Geiser believe that there was probably some amount of exaggeration to be used, but we're going to flush this out as well. Common to ancient Near East military accounts. This leaves open the possibility that these phrases may express some degree of hyperbolic language and thus that not no, that no non-combatants were actually killed. Very interesting. This is his particular argument. But let's flush this out a little bit more. First thing we need to understand when it comes to the motivation of why these wars took place, let's understand them. That these wars were geographically motivated, not racially motivated. 
What's oftentimes to, oftentimes to genocide is a racial motivation, a hatred of a particular group of people. But watch what the Bible says right here in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. The Lord your God brings you into the land which you go to possess and has cast many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, and the Perizzites, and the Hevites, and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than you. But one thing I want you to pay attention to was that some of these nations actually dwelt outside of the land of Canaan. But God never commanded them, I want you to go out and search in the entire world, in the entire other nations, and I want you to destroy these tribes. No, they were specifically the tribes that were located in the Holy Land. When you look at genocide, like say you take a good look at Hitler's genocide, you find that the Germans would actually exterminate Jews, not just in Germany, but in different nations as well. But this was something that was specifically targeting a certain land. This was geographically motivated, not racially motive, mo motivated. Let's understand something. Even when God dealt with foreigners, look what the Bible says in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 33 and 34. If a stranger, that's an alien, that's a foreigner, dwells with you in your land, you shall not mistreat him. The stranger who dwells among you shall be to you as one born to you, and you shall love him as yourself. That's amazing. God was giving rules and saying, look, this is how you treat strangers who want to be peaceful. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Now, this is very interesting. We're going to take a good look at some of the wartime ethics that were used. The wartime ethics. Watch what the Bible says in Deuteronomy chapter 20. When you go near a city to fight against it, then proclaim and offer a peace to it. So there were two types of wars. Rabbis believed that there were two types of wars. There was something that was called discretionary wars. In other words, wars that were outside or extensions of Israel. And then you had specifically the divinely commanded wars which were inside Israel. But the wartime ethics had to do with specifically the groups outside of Israel. Say if there was a need to expand the border or reclaim borders. When you go near a city to fight against it, then proclaim an offer of peace to it. And it shall be that if they accept your offer of peace and open to you, then all the people who are found in it shall be placed under tribute to you and shall serve you. Here's another wartime ethic. When you go out to war against your enemies and the Lord your God delivers them into your hand and you take them captive and you see among the captives a beautiful woman and desire her and would take her for your wife, you may go into her and be her husband and she shall be your wife. And it shall be, if you have no delight in her, then you shall set her free. For you have certainly not sell her for her money. You shall certainly not sell her for money. You shall not treat her brutally. It's very interesting when you take a good look at all the laws that were regulating slavery and marriage. What you begin to understand is that what God was actually doing was teaching the Israelites what not to do. They were so educated by the Egyptians about how to treat slaves, how to treat prisoners of wars, and so what God was dealing with them was telling them basically, look, this is not how you treat people. This is not, and he was giving them guidelines to actually protect them from brutality. Here's another wartime ethic, Deuteronomy 20. When you besiege a city for a long time while making war against to take it, you shall not destroy its trees by wielding an axe against them. If you can eat of them, do not cut them down to use in the siege, for the tree of the field is man's food. God would make sure that the children of Israel would actually preserve the agriculture in the land as well. Environmental God that we have. Very interesting. 
All right, now specifically when it came to the divinely commanded wars. Thus you shall do to all the cities which are very far from you, which are not of the cities of these nations, but of the city of these people which the Lord your God gives you as inheritance, you shall let nothing that breathes remain alive, but you shall utterly destroy them. The Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Prezite, the Hevite, the Jebusite, just as the Lord your God has commanded you. Now pay attention to this. This is extremely important. Lest they teach you to do according to all their abominations, which they have done for their gods, and you sin against the Lord your God. Now notice this. Pay attention to the reasoning that God is giving to them. He's saying, the reason why you need to completely destroy everything that's in the land, because it would be a snare to you, and you would end up doing what they were doing. Well, we're going to discover what they were doing. God wanted the destruction of the Canaanite wickedness more than of the Canaanite themselves. In fact, do you remember the first city that God commanded them to conquer when it came to the land of Canaan, when the children of Israel entered into the Holy Land, crossed the Jordan? The city of Jericho. Very interesting. Pay attention to what Ellen White says about the city of Jericho. Jericho was one of the principal seats of idol worship, being especially devoted to Asherah, the goddess of the moon. Here centered, now this is key, here centered all that was vilest and most degrading in the religion of the Canaanites. You see, God had a problem, and the problem was this. It wasn't so much that God was angry at them because they were worshiping different gods. It was because of the practical applications. They were doing something that apparently had immense consequences. Sacred occultic prostitution was practiced to ensure the fertility of the land. Fertility of the field, flock, and family was thought to depend upon the sexual relations between Baal and Ath. Thus, male and female worshippers engaged in sacred sexual acts in the temple in order to assure for themselves the blessings of nature. Another practice with Canaanite holy places was child sacrifice. Children were offered to the Canaanite gods as the supreme sacrifice and a demonstration a demonstration of faith by the worshiper. Now, two things were being done in Canaan, two major things, prostitution and child sacrifice. Now, when they entered the city of Jericho, did they come across certain prostitutes? Who was the prostitute? Rahab. Most likely Rahab was one of these cultic prostitutes. It's interesting when you read that, you find that when Rahab was preserved, do you know who else was preserved with her? Who was in her family? Her father and his family. She doesn't have children. You know what happened to the children of prostitutes? They were sacrificed. Do you know it's only after Rahab leaves Israel that she has a child? Do you know who her child was? Boaz. Do you know why Boaz was so interested in Ruth? Because she was an outsider like his mom was. Do you know who Boaz and Ruth are? Who was their child? Obed. And who was the child of Obed? And who was the child of Jesse? David. You see what was happening here? You have the lineage of Jesus connected to this city. Had Rahab not come out of that city... Who knows what the consequences might have been? Folks, there is more at stake than we fully realize here. More at stake. Rahab would never have had any children. 
had she not come out of that city. Let's keep going. Here are some uh, reports from some uh, various groups that were worshipping the same gods found in the land of Canaan. This is by Diodorus Seleucus, and this is what he says. There was in their city a bronze image of Kronos extending its hand, palms up, sloping towards the ground so that each of the children, when placed therein, rolled down and fell into a sort of gaping pit filled with fire. This is child sacrifice. Plutarch. The whole area before the statue was filled with a loud noise of flutes and drums so that the cries of wailing of the children being sacrificed should not reach the ears of the people. Something interesting to pay attention to is that they were sacrificing children not just in this specific area. This was actually a worldwide phenomenon. I'm going to back that up in just a bit. In 1921, the largest cement cemetery of sacrificed infants in the ancient Near East was discovered at Carthage. Carthage. You know why Carthage is so important in the discovery of this? Because Carthage was the farthest outpost of Moloch worship. So basically what was happening in Carthage was what was happening in Canaan as well. It is established that this rite of child sacrifice originated in Phoenicia, ancient Israel's northern neighbor, and was brought to Carthage by its Phoenician colonizers. Hundreds of burial urns were filled with the cremated bones of infants. We're talking not just hundreds, thousands in some cases, mostly newborns. Some people made the argument that, wait a minute, these newborns were simply stillborns in babies that just didn't come out alive. Well, they believed that until they didn't begin to do some further examination and found sacrificial cuts on the bones as well. They were sacrificed. But even some children up to the age six years old as well, as well as animals, have been uncovered at Carthage. Therefore, the Carthaginians believed that the misfortune had come upon them from their gods, betook themselves to every manner of supplication of divine powers. In their zeal to make amends for their emotion, they selected 200 of the noblest children and sacrificed them publicly. It's interesting to note that, uh, well, this is, as I was coming up with this um, PowerPoint, I was uh, taking care of my little nephew and my little niece. And as I was just looking at them, just the thought crossed my mind, how could people do something like that? You see, that's the thing to understand about sin, folks. Sin dethrones human reason. It dethrones human reason. Common sense. Any dignity left in humanity is just thrown out the window. Gazer, this is actually an actual city that took place in the conquest of Joshua and the Israelites. Under the sanctuary in the ancient city of Gezer, urns containing the burnt bones of children have been found that are dated to somewhere between 2000 and 1500 BC, between the time of Abraham and Exodus. We're talking thousands of urns were discovered there of child sacrifice. This is, folks, this isn't something, like I said, that was just, you know, a little bit here and there. There were thousands of these that were taking place in the land of Canaan. God was actually dealing with a big problem here. He was wanting to stomp out this problem. And I'll tell you why. It's because Canaan was the heart of the earth. You've heard of the phrase, when, uh, you know, when America sneezes, the whole world catches the flu? Well, that could be said of the land of Canaan. What Canaan did, everybody else did. And so when God was dealing with this problem, he was getting to the very heart organ of the body. And he was effectually destroying a big problem. Tophet, Jeremiah 3rd chapter 7 verse 31. And they have built the high places of Tophet to burn their sons and daughters in the fire, which I did not command them, nor did come into my own heart. In the single child cemetery called the Tophet, by archaeologists, an estimated 20,000 urns were discovered. 
20,000 urns were discovered. Very interesting, you see this over and over again. Watch what this anthropologist said. Infocide has been practiced on every continent by, every, by people on every level of cultural complexity, from hunter and gatherers to hunter-gatherers to high civilizations, including our own ancestors. Rather than being an exception, then it has been the rule. So during that time, child sacrifice was prevalent. It was well known. It was something that was commonly practiced over and over again. In the Egyptian culture, the Phoenician culture, Canaanite tribes, this was all over the world. In fact, it still exists today in certain dark parts of the world. Child sacrifice is still being done. But during that time, it was so widespread. It was just a common thing that took place. It would blow our mind how widespread it was. Based upon, this is just what was discovered. I mean, it blows our mind. Now, this is where it gets so interesting. Now, pay attention to this. Infocide was practiced on every continent by people on every level of cultural complexity. And it had its zenith during the time of the Old Testament. Specifically around between the times of Abraham all the way down to the time of Joshua. And it was during this time that God was wanting to stomp out a big problem. And one of the ways he began this process of destroying this evil wickedness was inserting a very godly man. And this man's name was Abraham. In fact, you read what Ellen White says, and she says in Patriarchs and Prophets, that when Abraham entered into Canaan, he could see on the mountaintops human sacrifices. And do you remember the story of Abraham? That it gets right down to when he has Isaac, his firstborn. And he, God tells Isaac one day, or tells Abraham, I want you to sacrifice your firstborn. And Abraham's filled with this thought, wait a minute, that's what all the wicked people are doing. And he gets there, and he's about to sacrifice this, his, his only son. He's, this wasn't like he was just dropping the knife, oops, I dropped it. No, he was just, when he raised it, it was ready to come down. And as he raised it, God stopped him. And do you remember what God said? I don't want your firstborn. I will provide my own. You know what God was doing? He was dropping in the cure. The story of Abraham has permeated nearly every single religion, every single culture. And you know what God was doing by the story of Abraham? In fact, you read Patriarchs and Prophets. She says it wasn't just um, Abraham that was part of this experience. The whole universe was watching as well. The story of Abraham was designed to bring about a cure to stop a major ideological problem, a tradition that had started, and now God was seeking to stop it. And so when people would hear the story of Abraham, they'd wait, wait a minute, God doesn't want our firstborn. In fact, when I went to the British Museum, I was speaking in England about a month ago, I went to the part of the British Museum that has to do with the land of Ur. So interesting, they actually have an artifact there, it's called the ram caught in the thicket. It dates to the time of Abraham. It's a little ram, and it's caught in the thicket. Where do you think they got this story? The story of Abraham. In fact, Patriarchs and Prophets says that Abraham influenced the other Canaanites that were in the area. God was saying, I don't want your firstborn. I don't want it. Stop sacrificing this. And because of it, this was laid in the very center of Israelite history. That's why Abraham is called the father of many nations. And that story of Abraham was designed to be a security for the Israelites. Like saying, don't get yourself involved in child sacrifice. Don't do what these other nations are doing. I want you to remember the story of Abraham. Remember your father Abraham. 
Do not sacrifice your firstborn. It was just a common thing. Whenever something went wrong, let's just sacrifice our firstborn. It was so common. I read, was reading some letters that were written by some individuals. They actually have it still. Uh, historians have it. And they're just describing, hey, if things go good in the land, you know, keep your son. If they don't, just sacrifice them. It was just a common thing. Like an animal. And God was teaching them that their firstborn was so valuable to them. This is where it gets even more interesting. Canaan was at the crosswords of the world, forming a bridge between three continents, Asia to the east, Africa to the south, and Europe to the north. It was a meeting place for the highly developed civilizations from Egypt and Babylon. Across the sea, Canaan was a trade center for towns all around the Mediterranean, as well as being the connection via the Red Sea, between the Mediterranean and the Indian Ocean. Now pay attention to this, okay? Canaan was a very important area. It was the crosswords, the heart of the earth. Now watch what one Bible scholar says right here. Excuse me, this is Deuteronomy. This is a Bible scholar as well. Thus you shall do to all the cities which are very far from you, which are not of the cities of these nations, but of the cities of these people which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance, you shall let nothing that breathes remain alive. This is going to be a powerful point. Don't miss this. You shall utterly destroy them, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Prezites, the Hevite, and the Jebusite, just as your Lord your God has commanded you, lest they teach you to do according to all their what? abominations which they have done for your gods and you sin against your Lord your God. In fact, take your Bibles out. I'm going to show you where this word abomination appears over and over again. Take your Bible, go to Leviticus chapter 18. Starting with verse 21. Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 18, starting with verse 21. Are we all there? And you shall not let any of your descendants pass through the fire of Molech, nor shall you profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. In fact, when you read the entire chapter, God deals with the laws of sexual morality. Making sure that they were not sleeping with animals. Making sure that they were not sleeping with people of the same gender. What was happening was that there was sexual perversion taking place. In fact, you read over and over again, you find that when God's greatest judgments take place, it takes place when there is sexual perversion. You look at why God destroyed the people before the flood. Why was it? Because they were mixing. You read why God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. It's because there was sexual perversion. Well, what's the big deal? It's just sexual perversion. But folks, I want you to understand something. What is always connected to sin is disease. Watch what this Bible scholar says. The immorality of the Canaanites is illustrated throughout their religious literature, such as the pleasure which the goddess Aneth wades up to her knees in the blood and excrement of her defeated enemies and then washes her hands in it. The blasphemous poems about the 88 times she had sex with Baal in the form of a cow. And by the way, over and over again, God calls abominations bestiality. He says, bestiality is abomination. Why? Because the Israelites could see it in the nations around them. Now watch this. And the sexual excavates of the supreme deity El with his two wives and daughters speak volumes. Things weren't much better among the surrounding people. The Hittites were permitted to have sex with the horse or a mule, and other peoples had no restriction whatsoever in the area of sex. Watch what he says next. The way of life for the Canaanites represent a serious threat to the public health of the Israelites, both on a physical level and a spiritual level. From a medical point of view, the greatest threat lay with parasitic diseases, which plagued the country, especially sexually transmitted diseases and plagues. 
Diseases of this type have the greatest chance of spreading in hot countries where people have a low social status and poor hygiene. Precisely the conditions in a country to which the Israelites were going. The fact that these diseases indeed have a devastating effect is revealed by the low life expectancy of around 30 years. In our eyes, the measures to protect the people of Israel which Moses took following God's instructions were extremely strict. When you look at the sanitary practice of the Israelites, it was specifically designed to guard against STDs. God even told the priest, if someone's been raped, don't you take them as a wife. Well, what's the big deal about STDs? Well, there's a big deal. Infertility. Do you know two-thirds of infertility in the world is due to STDs? 30 of them, 30% of that is due to gonorrhea. Watch this. In Leviticus 15 verse 2, it says, When a man has a bodily discharge, the discharge is unclean. In the Septuagint, the Greek translation, the Old Testament, the word gonorrhea is used for this discharge. In fact, I was looking at one scholar, he was like, he doesn't understand why the English translations sought to avoid the usage of that word gonorrhea. They're trying to save the Israelites from from the you know, Old Testament history from this. But you look, it was gonorrhea, variant forms of gonorrhea. And gonorrhea leads to infertility as well. In other words, the discharge did not refer to emission of semen or a wound which flows, which blood or pus flows, but it refers to venereal diseases that cause a constant extraction of fluid, excretion of fluid from the genitals. This fluid is full of bacteria and extremely infectious. This is one of the reasons why God would sometimes command the destruction of just the males. There would be times where God would command the destruction of both males, females to children, including everything else, and they were to burn it with fire. Essentially what God was doing was dealing with disease. In fact, did you know during 1965 to 1977, because of the whole free sex and hippie era, gonorrhea in America multiplied by three times. Three times. Three times. Now imagine this. You have Canaan, the land where sex is free. Can you imagine the sexual diseases that probably begin to run rampant? In fact, watch what the Bible says right here. It says the land is defiled. The Hebrew word means contaminated. In fact, when you read over again Leviticus 18, it says three times, the land is vomiting you, these nations up. The land is vomiting. The land is vomiting. I talked to Don McIntosh and he says, let me tell you something. When people die of STDs, many times they're just vomiting over and over again at the end of their life. It is not something pretty. STDs also passed on to the children as well. Folks, effectively what God was doing with the Israelites was sending a hazmat team in. That's why they had all these sanitary practices. That's why they had all these restrictions. He was effectually trying to deal with disease control in Canaan. And we need to understand that. Because sometimes God will command the Israelites, he says, look, Don't just destroy everything. I want you to burn it. This is something that people would do like who were involved in quarantine procedures. Over and over again, God was trying to deal with a huge problem that had the potential to destroy many lives. 
Ellen White talks about sin, how sin is passed to the third and fourth generation. Now, this is where it gets very interesting. Ellen White, one day, it's not Ellen White, the Bible talks in Genesis chapter 15, verse 16, in the fourth generation, they shall return here for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. God always was very tolerant and had a level of probation with these nations. He allowed them to come to a point, if they did not change, where it would be necessary to bring upon judgment whether he would use the Israelites or whether he himself would bring judgment. But he allowed for mercy. In fact, when you read the entire Old Testament, escape was always possible for these nations. Escape was always possible for these nations. Always possible. Take your Bible, go to Joshua chapter 5, verse 13. Actually, you don't need to go there. I'll just tell you what the verse is. One day, uh, Joshua was about to go into the Holy Land, begin this process of driving out these other nations. And he's getting up there in the morning, and do you know who he sees standing up right before him? He gets up in the morning, the commander of the Lord, right? It was none other than Jesus. And so here Joshua is, he's got his entire team, they're sleeping, and they're about to go drive out these other nations. They're about to do a very, very difficult work. Now this is where it gets so interesting. He gets up in the morning, and he sees the commander of the Lord. And Joshua wants to make sure this is no spy, this is no evil person who's going to destroy them or bring some type of calamity. And he says, are you for us or are you against us? Do you remember that? But do you remember the reply he gave? Neither. In other words, Joshua, this isn't about your team. This isn't about their team. There's something higher here the principle of righteousness. He was trying to lead Joshua's mind to understand something. This isn't about you as Israel. This isn't about them as Canaan or the other team. This is about the principle of righteousness. In fact, holiness, we need to understand, is not just tied into these abstract ideas. Holiness is tied into practical life. Practical life. And he was saying to these Israelites, look, you guys are destroying this nation because there is a very big sin problem here. And if it is not contained, it has the potential to destroy the entire world. And so this is one of the reasons why God was so forthright in trying to help them understand what their mission was. What about the children? It's very interesting. When you read the book of Esther, you find that Esther, apparently, the Jews have an enemy. Do you remember who this enemy was? Haman. He hated the Jews. You read from the very beginning, he utterly hates the Jews. And he wants to destroy them from some apparent reason. The Bible reveals his ethnicity. Because Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews, to annihilate them, and Caspar, that is the lot to consume them and destroy them. And if it wasn't for the intervention of Esther, the Jews would have been destroyed all over the land. Do you know what an Agagite is? It's an Amalekite. The children of Israel were told by Saul, or God told Saul, destroy all the Amalekites. In his failure to destroy them, you know what happened? The children grew up and wanted revenge. Oftentimes it's very difficult for us to understand. Wait a minute, why would God command the destruction of children? Folks, I want you to understand something. What are the other options? I'm not looking for justification as I'm just simply asking, what are the other options? To be raised by the Israelites? They would grow up to find out that these people are their, the murderers of their parents. Folks, this was a very difficult dilemma for God. 
a very difficult dilemma. In fact, I was really praying about this just the last few days, and I was saying, God, how could it ever be justified to take the life of an infant, a child? How could that ever be justified? When would there be a circumstance? And I really believe the Lord led me to an example. Very difficult example. I was reading about a certain law case that took place in England several years ago. There's two Siamese twins. Siamese twins. One of them was connected and using the organs of the other child. Surgery had to be sought, or within three or four months, both children would be dead. The parents refused to make that decision. They were Catholics, and they felt that this would be murder. The judges had to take this into their own hands, and so they discussed and debated the issue, and they brought in various religious teachers. Um, they even brought rabbis in, and ra these rabbis said, it would be necessary to destroy the life of this child to save the other life, because both of them would be dead. And they gave an analogy where they described a caravan transporting a criminal being attacked by a band of marauders, and these marauders are wanting to kill this criminal or kill everybody else, what would they do? And their reasoning was, let the criminal go to save everybody else. That was their reasoning. Eventually, though, the courts made the decision that it was necessary for the doctors to have to take the life of that child that was essentially using the organs of the other child to save that other one. And I realized something as I was just reading this article and it dawned on me, God was dealing with a very difficult dilemma here. Either destroy this particular group of this particular individuals, these tribes, or let both of them perish in just a little bit. And so God, the great physician, began the work of surgery. And it was very painful for God because both of these groups were created by him. Folks, this is never easy for the Lord, what took place in the Old Testament, and we're going to come to understand that God did everything in his power to try to save and redeem these people groups. Watch what Ellen White says right here. Whether all the children of unbelieving parents will be saved, we cannot tell, because God has not made his purpose in regard to, known his purpose in regard to this matter, and we had better leave it where God had left it and dwell upon subjects made plain in his words. In other words, folks, what happened to this children? She said, God hasn't given us light. We don't know if they could be saved. They said, how is that possible? They were taken in judgment. Do you know there are several cases in the Old Testament where people have been taken in judgment, yet they are saved? Do you know Abraham was taken in judgment? He was not allowed to go into the physical Holy Land. He was judged, and he was told he was going to die on that mountain. Moses, excuse me, thank you. Appreciate that. Thank you. Same with Aaron. Same with Josiah the king. Taken in judgment, yet they're going to be saved. Moses is saved already. We know about that. But folks, I want you to understand, the, the destiny or the destination of these children has not been revealed to us. In fact, one thing Ellen White does reveal is that there are going to be children in heaven who don't have parents. We don't know what happened to these children. We don't know their fate. I sent this quote to Paul Copen. He's a non-Adventist. He's considered the foremost authority on the Old Testament. And look what he, Ellen White says right here. Unless punishment had been speedily visited upon transgression, the same results would have been seen again. The earth would have become corrupt as in the days of Noah. It was the mercy of God that thousands should suffer to prevent the necessity of visiting judgment upon millions. 
To save the many, he must punish the few. And it was no less a mercy to the sinners themselves that they should be cut short in their evil course. In other words, God was saving them from reaping more judgment upon themselves. Had their lives been spared, the same spirit that led them to rebel against God would have been manifested in hatred and strife among themselves. They would have eventually destroyed one another. Folks, there are so many issues and so many levels in the destruction of the Canaanites um, when it comes to the discussion. Similar to a jihad, it's very interesting, this is written in a Muslim holy book. When you meet your enemies who are polytheists, invite them to three courses of action. If they respond to any one of these, you also accept it and withhold yourself from doing them any harm. Invite them to accept Islam. If they respond to you, accept it from them and desist, desist from fighting against them. If they refuse to accept Islam, demand from them jizya. If they agree to pay, accept it from them and hold off your hands. If they refuse to pay the tax, seek Allah's help and fight them. You want to know something? God never told the Jews, when you go into the whole land, hey, I want you to tell them the reason why they're being destroyed is because they're not Jewish. That was never the intention of God. This wasn't about different gods. To, in fact, you want to know something? When you read Revelation chapter 22, you want to know why most people are outside the kingdom? It wasn't because violations of the first four. It was violations because of the last six. You look at all the violations why people are outside the kingdom. Revelation 22, it was violations of the last six of the commandments. What do the last six of the commandments have to do with? Our relationship with who? Each other. Each other. God used not only Israel to judge other nations, but other nations were used to bring judgment upon the nation of Israel. This wasn't about Israel. This was about just judgment. In fact, when you read the book of the, uh, Jonah, or the book of of Jonah, you find that God sends a prophet to a pagan area. In fact, they've done archaeology studies and they've discovered that those Ninevites, those Assyrians, actually believed in fish gods. And so you can imagine that when Jonah showed up, it's like, I've been swallowed by a giant fish. <gasps> and so they're apt to listen. But what God did with the story of Jonah, but what God did with the story of Jonah shows us something. He reveals his working with all of mankind, that these other nations, just because they're not talked about, were, were not dismissed, but he would send his holy men to them. And the Bible says in Acts chapter 10, verse 10, I believe, any nation that accepts, any nation that accepts righteousness is accepted with God. Any nation. Any nation. The Bible talks about the new uh, uh, Jerusalem. It's very interesting. This blew me away. It blew me away because one day I was studying this topic out. Uh, the Lord led me to a certain psalm. Psalms 87. The psalm of the sons of Korah. And we're closing on this. His foundation in the holy mountains. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwellings of Jacob. Glorious things. Now pay attention. Glorious things are spoken of you, O city of God. In fact, the Andrew's Bible study commentary says this. That the psalmist was given a picture of the new Jerusalem. And he's listening to the conversation happening in the new Jerusalem. Watch what he hears. I will make mention of Rahab and Babylon to those who know me. Behold, O Philistia and Tyre and Ethiopia, this one was born there. And of Zion it shall be seen, said, this one, was, this one and that one were born her, and the Most High himself shall establish her. The Lord will record when he registers the people. In other words, what he was hearing was the roll call of heaven. And you know what he was hearing on the roll call of heaven? People who were born in Rahab, people who were born in Philistia. People who were born in Tyre. What were these nations known for? Their abominations 
and their warranted destruction. Yet as he's hearing this, he's like, wait a minute. Weren't those the bad guys? Why are people in heaven who come from those nations? As I was studying out, it blew my mind away. And then I remembered later on that day, it was my mom's birthday. And my mom is a Hindu. I called my mom. It was just a very interesting, solemn moment. I was just say, Mom, I love you. And I really sense God say to me, Anel, I know where your mom was born. I know everything about her. I believe God was giving me a promise that she is going to be saved one day. Folks, this is super important for us to understand. There are very, oh, so many issues when it comes to the Old Testament. And God wants us to understand that we need to study out and for intelligent, God will reveal these things to us. Can you say amen to that? God will reveal all these things to us. When we get to heaven, there's going to be a lot of people, every tribe, nation, tongue, and people. One day I was sitting with my Hindu uncles, both of them who were very troublesome when I first became a Seventh-day Adventist about 11 years ago. They gave me a lot of problems. They were devout Hindus. I saw them a few months ago, and they were visiting America. They're old men by now, just really old, and they have a lot of medical problems, and they're about to go back to India, and I, I don't know when I would see them again. It could be, this could be the last time. And I was saying, God, give me something to say to them. These are people who don't know you, who come from pagan lands. Pagan, pagan, I come from pagan land too. They come from pagan uh, religions. And so like, I was just really praying. I said, God, I may not see them and give me one chance to witness to them. And so I was going downstairs and I was sitting down with them. And they started talking with me. And they always bring up marriage. That's what Indian old people do. They always bring up marriage. Are you married? I was like, no, no. <laughs> and as we're just sitting down in this discussion, we're just having this discussion and they're talking to me. And they start asking me questions about the Bible. I say, what do you believe about this? What do you believe? And I'm trying not to argue with them because it just, it's happened in the past. I'm just trying to listen and just answer the questions as they're giving it. And it's not going anywhere. And I'm saying, God, they're about to leave and they're about to get on a plane. I'm not going to see them again. God, give me one chance. And it just wasn't going anywhere. And finally, just in the midst of the discussion, I said, you want to know something very interesting? I said, the Bible records in the book of Zechariah chapter 13. There's going to be Hindus, Muslims, Buddhists, people from all over the world, people like you. We're going to see God one day, and they're going to be surprised about something. The Bible says in Zechariah, they'll say to him, where did you get the wounds in your hands? And he replied, I was wounded in the house of my friends. In other words, there's going to be people in heaven who did not know about the crucifixion, and number two, Jesus will himself explain the crucifixion story to them. At that moment, my uncle's jaw was just dropped. And it was just, the air was so thick, and I sensed at that very moment, the Holy Spirit trying to penetrate into their mind and reveal God to them. Amen. Folks, God wants us to share with many people, regardless of their backgrounds. He wants us to lift up the cross to them and show them the love of Jesus. Have you been blessed by this presentation? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much. God, even now we're still scratching the surface. But Lord, I, I know that you revealed yourself today. 
God, the difficult decisions you've had to make. Thank you for being our God. We love you and we commit ourselves to you in Jesus' name. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources, visit us online at gycweb.org.